US businessman Dan Friedkin takes Redbird over. has recently made waves. MLB and NBA appear to be the lead. Ed Sheeran becomes Ipswich Township. Saudi Prince adds French side Chateau. NFL finalises new 11-year media rights deal with Amazon. 200 million pound for a 27% chunk of the English Premiership. Private equity led shake up as the United Rugby Championship replaces Pro 14. Private equity firms set to buy up rights in South Africa after a 365 million pound Six Nations deal. I'm Reese Lenarduzzi and this is Sportonomic. In this episode, I look at investment in rugby with a particular focus on the recent invest in the league rather than the clubs approach from private equity. I also look at the controversial topic of promotion and relegation in rugby, whether it adds or detracts in appeal for investors and the legal implications surrounding the topic. My first guest is former Australian rugby captain, James Horwill. James played 10 seasons in the Super Rugby for the Queensland Reds, followed by four seasons with English Premiership club Harlequins. I was eager to have James on the podcast, him having just completed an MBA at Cambridge where he researched and wrote extensively on private equity investment in sport. My second guest is Ben Cisneros. Ben is a sports lawyer with UK firm Morgan Sports Law. He graduated from Selwyn College, Cambridge with a first in law in 2019. Ben is the founder and exclusive contributor to website and social media blog, Rugby and the Law. He appears regularly on a variety of media platforms, including newspapers, television, podcasts and other radio broadcasts internationally about the legal issues in rugby union. Ben has also had work published by the International Sports Law Journal and Law and Sport. No nation has won more Rugby World Cups. No brand is bigger in the global game than its All Blacks. But behind the success, however, are shaky foundations, dwindling numbers of volunteers, cash-strapped clubs and unions at grassroots level, and a financial inability to grow the women's game as all involved dream to do. This is just a snapshot of why New Zealand's provincial unions have voted to accept an offer from US private equity firm Silver Lake to acquire 12.5% of the All Blacks commercial rights for US $273 million dollars which is nearly 400 million New Zealand dollars. It values the All Blacks at 2.2 billion US dollars. Only the New Zealand Players Association stand in the way. The deal is seen as Silver Lake, who have an impressive list of sports investments themselves, somewhat getting in on the action in rugby. CVC in recent years have been the private equity group that has rolled through the sport in the Northern Hemisphere, acquiring stakes in the English Premiership, the former Pro 14, now rebranded as the United Rugby Championship, as well as the Six Nations Tournament. For his research, on the private equity side, James Horwell has spent considerable time with PE fund managers, investment committee members, PE lawyers and advisors, as well as consultants specialising in PE and sports investments. On the rugby side, James has spent time with high-level rugby executives, chairmen of global and national governing bodies, player associations, as well as owners and CEOs of teams and senior managers tasked with considering PE investment. I asked James, why rugby? Yeah, look, I think when you look at sports in general, and particularly rugby, it's, you know, I guess rugby as a whole is quite 
you know, young in terms of its professionalism. It only turned professional in 95 when you look at that compared to a lot of other sports, particularly US sports that have been professional for a long time and probably in the UK and around the world, the one that rugby's compared to is football, which has been paying its players for 50, 60 years. So so they, they've gone through a lot of the similar things that you see rugby going through now. And I think rugby has a unique view that it works very hard and part of the great part about the sport is it, it holds its tradition values very highly so the traditions of rugby the traditions of the sport and and that probably flows through in the governance structure as well and I think the governance of the game is sort of held that you know some of these professional clubs are run like your local club that's on you know by the same sort of group of people that would run the local club down on a on a Saturday where the kids run around or you you know guys training on a Tuesday Thursday night and run around on a Saturday and sort of subbies and it's more of a social aspect so I think there is a big push from private equity that see this and go, well, look, we can come in and do this better. And also on top of that, that there's no doubting, and I think this was happening before the COVID-19 pandemic, that there was a a need for cash in rugby. You know, even the the so-called pseudo-richest unions in the, you know, the RFU needed cash. And a lot of that is in reliance to single forms of revenue, you know, there's a huge reliance for the RFU on, on ticketing at, at Twickenham. So as soon as you take that ticketing away, they're like, crap, what do, what do we do now? And where CVC are looking at, you know, in, in, in their sense, they've, they've seen what they've done with Formula One, you know, been able to broadcast a little bit better and um, shown it from there. So I think it's a it's an interesting space, but overall, rugby as a whole, what private equity are looking at is saying, they're, well, we can get this cheap and we can run it better and give it give it more value. And I guess the ultimate thing is that most rugby codes at the moment are in desperate need of cash. And I don't think there's a sporting body or a rugby body around the globe that wouldn't say they need more money. I've written elsewhere that the sentiment expressed and implied from these prodigious financial firms towards these sports to which they invest is some version of the following. The problem is not your sport, it's you. You may know your sport, but you do not know how to maximize the value that your sport can generate. You have financial issues, but you do not know how to solve them. But we do. I asked James to drill down on this idea clearly expressed by PE that rugby is poorly run. No, look, I think a lot of people see that sport connected to the, the traditions, particularly rugby, that it's it's sort of run by the old boys club and Part of my research that I did, if you look into it, you know, the amount of private equity guys said, please don't take this the wrong way, but, you know, rugby clubs are run by ex-players that have no idea what they're talking about in terms of commercializations of assets. And I think that's the interesting part when you look at it as a sport is that, you know, when you look at rugby, particularly, you know, in Australia um, and also in the UK, they look at the fan base, you know, traditionally middle middle income to high income individuals so people that have a lot of disposable income and that they have a a connection to the sport particularly the national team particularly the UK the English team you know England sell out 82,000 at Twickenham basically every game they play there you know it's tough to get a ticket and people paying 200 300 pounds a pot for a basic basic seat it shows that there's a demand there and so I think they look and go well how can we monetize this what they look at as a prime target audience because they've got the disposable income that probably a lot of other sports fan base might not have but also look at it that going well 
we've got these old boys that are running this code that have been sort of running it like as I said earlier the you know the local club you know what PE do is a traditional PE not so much around sport as they they back their ability their their operational nows to come in and either operationally engineer financially engineer an organization to run it at a, at a higher profit to then sell it on so I think they come in and go, well, if we can run it like we would do one of our normal businesses, we can minimise the cost base, improve the the picture, understand what everyone's looking at, then ultimately we're going to make more money because they're doing a bad job and we can do it better. And that's a lot of the viewpoint of some of these big private equity houses is that, you know, let us get our expertise in it. We've been doing this for years. We do it with all these different companies. How hard is it to run a sports team? It's not that much different, which is then, you know, brings you to the issues that, Sport is different, and I'm sure we'll come to it later, but that's the unique thing. That's why people love it. That's why people keep coming back. You know, it, it is different, and if it's not treated differently, then that's when I think you'll see people come to some issues. The term, the timing is now, is frequently circled in relation to these rugby investments. James has expanded on the why rugby question. I asked him to expand on why now. The timing of where the sports industry is as a globe is at but I think particularly rugby was mentioned earlier that it's you know a lot of these codes and a lot of these unions and teams are on their needs you know they're collectively losing a lot of money they're financed in a way that they're overly reliant on gate earnings and gate income so with COVID coming in it is now basically removed one of its major sources of income so you do that from any any business you're going to struggle. But what it's done is made it so overly reliant on broadcast, which is it's sort of their biggest money spinner, which I'm sure we'll come to a little bit later. But I think for the sport in general, it, it's a funny one because you look at, you know, Europe and, you know, the time is now with a lot of clubs and everyone's losing money. You look in the, even football, whereas you go to the US, the reason private equity are looking to get involved and, you know, the, the NBA has changed its rules in, in allowing institutional investors has been because the value of the teams has gotten so high that it's almost ruling out too many people can actually afford the value of the team. They can't actually afford to pay. The number of people that can pay, you know, three, four, five billion dollars for a team is getting very small. You know, it's funny because in the US it's gone the other way, whereas you look in Europe and, you know, rugby and football, a lot of the teams, it's PE getting involved because a lot of sports unions you know rugby particularly don't see another option they're like this is all we can do i mean i think we've heard the chairman of the australian rugby union come out and say that he wouldn't be going down the pe path or looking down the pe path if he didn't have to you know i think covid's just basically laid bare what was already happening within rugby beyond the identified poor operations and governance and the held view that rugby is undervalued PE undeniably sees ways in which they can add value. I asked James to speak to this point with a particular emphasis on the fan opportunity and brand value. I think when you look at sport in general, and you can look at rugby specifically, but I think sport and and business is that people like connections to brands. You know, I think I read a a HBR article that's saying 90% of all consumer decisions are based on emotion. And, and I think when you when you read that and you think about sport, you know that's what sport is. Sport drives emotion in people and 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 us more than anything else, really. And it gives a connection to something that people find and 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 don't want to let go of. And I think when private equity look at it from that standpoint, 
they see that there's this, you've got this consumer base that is just, they're going to be there. They're going to be there whether you're winning, whether you're losing, whether you're, you've got the best team in the world or you're playing in the bottom team. I think rugby is a little bit different, but if you look at, say, a sport like football or soccer in the UK, it doesn't matter whether your team's playing in the top division or your team's playing in the bottom division. You've still got this loyal fan base that are always going to turn up. And I think that's where private equity see this sort of almost a guaranteed customer base that allows, you know, from a customer base and you create revenue streams from it. So that is something that is unique to sport. And I don't think any other industry in the world has that connection with their fan base or essentially their customers. And this is where we can, you know, you can get into that there might be some collisions of viewpoints and on how to deal with it. If they're looking at the fans as purely just customers, you're going to lose that emotional connection. I think you saw a little bit of that with the Super League as I said, there's no other industry like sport that has that emotional connection to that drives emotion within its customers or its fans like sports. So I think private equity see the monetization of that or the possibility to monetize that. And, you know, going back to the earlier points, probably don't think that sport to this point have been able to monetize that commitment to wanting to spend money to watch your team support your team or support your, your player. And so rugby's probably a little bit different, but maybe not at an international level, but at a, at a club level, you might not have the the craziness of the fans that you have in some other sports. You know, you look at football or soccer in the UK and even some of the US sports like the American football. I think there was a stat in the, in the UK at the time through COVID where a bunch of people were losing their jobs, a lot of, you know, financial pressures due to COVID-19. The last thing that people gave up was their their membership to their team that they supported. They didn't want to give that up because of the connection they had, even though it was going to cost them and they probably couldn't see them play for, you know, until probably this coming season. They still didn't want to give it up. It sort of shows that sport in itself is a is almost recession proof in the way that it, it pushes through and we've seen that, you know, over time. Expanding now on the opportunities identified by PE with rugby. I asked James to touch on the adjunct projects such as property and digital assets and the diversified portfolio approach of PE. All of the private equity that you speak to look for that, you know, that relationship where one of their investments could help the other. So therefore, their investments are, are working both doubly as hard for each other. So, you know, if you look at, say, something like Silver Lake, who have invested in obviously Man City and Man City have now obviously created quite a big real estate portfolio based around that club uh, around the world and Citigroup. Uh, and then also with, they, you know, they're, they're quite big in the digital space and see that sport, particularly rugby, is a little bit behind in the digital space and digital, you know, OTT broadcasting and, and the like. And they probably see a, that relationship with, say, the All Blacks, who are arguably, and, they, and realistically, they are the, the biggest brand in rugby. You know, that if you ask anyone around the world, even in the US, in, in through Asia, who the All Blacks are, they're probably going to know, have heard of the name, where they, you can't probably say that for a number of teams, other international teams. So I think this is another way that sort of private equity look at sport and say, well, we can use our expertise and, our, you know, and, and a long-time expertise, you know, years and years and years of work during whatever it is, whether it's real estate, whether it's digitalization of an asset, broadcast, and use the basically the sport as a spear to get through that. 
Private equity firms are notorious for being able to identify undervalued businesses that they can further improve the value and returns of by trimming unnecessary or wasteful expenses, as well as reconstruct operations and other inefficiencies. Whilst there is a view that these rugby investments are just PE being PE, there are clearly some rugby and perhaps sports-specific characteristics of these deals emerging. Minority stakes are foreign to some PE houses, as control is often paramount to the deals PE concerns itself with. In rugby, PE have had to accept minority positions. Betting on the league rather than clubs appears to be another feature to emerge from recent PE investment in rugby. I asked James to speak to this. With private equity, if you go and, and look at like a traditional private equity deal of any company, you know when you go through the history of it, they they traditionally take a stake that is enough to give them a majority holding or or at least control. In the sporting space, it's probably shifted a little bit in in recent time. You know, if you look at the way that they've taken minority stakes, you know, I guess the devil's in the detail with each of the deals, and you never know, you know, who goes on what board and who has final say, et cetera, et cetera. But from a very generic and high-level view, this is a little bit more foreign to the way that private equity have done business in the past. And it is certainly, and, and certainly by talking to a number of private equity, I've seen as a, as a slight risk in going forward that they wouldn't have control. But it's probably a little bit different to the way the asset's held. They probably look to hold the asset a little bit longer, which allows them to probably de-risk the asset. I guess we'll see how it plays out. Most of these are taken in in either leagues or, or you know, not so much in teams, although Silver Lake's a, a little bit different because it's taking out sort of a, a, a stake of New Zealand rugby and the and using the All Blacks brand. But by betting on the league rather than a teams, so to speak, you, you, these, I guess, guys like CBC, who are, are probably the biggest player in, in that space, are looking to, again, you know, we talk about de-risking their asset or de-risking their investment. By having the league, they're not sort of overly concerned who wins as long as someone, they've got more eyeballs watching it. Because if the, the more eyeballs watching, the more interest there is in the, in, the, in, the, in the competition as a whole, the more tightly contested the games, the more people are talking about the games, the more people come in, that ultimately improves their, their investment. Another feature of PE investment in rugby is the time horizons on the investments. James uncovered plenty in his discussions with PE houses on this point. Traditionally, a, a PE deal, depending on the industry, and the industry differs, but, you know, if you're very big, again, very generic and high level, you know, they're, they're probably two to five years would be a sort of holding period of, of in coming in, spending that, that two to five years of improving the business and then on selling it because ultimately they part of a, a PE investment is traditionally selling it either taking it taking it public by float or, or selling it to another PE firm or selling it to a private investor or wh- whatever it may be but they, there is a there's an endpoint there's an exit that they look to now in the sports assets it has been known and, 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 and widely talked about that the, the whole period that they have is, is probably double that what you you know, look for a traditional private equity investment. And that is, again, uh, a little bit to the point I touched on earlier about de-risking the asset because there is a bit of volatility around sport. It's not your traditional industry and, and things are going to take a little bit longer to embed and, and the changes are going to be a little bit more difficult to make. 
and sort of seeing quite universally that these hold periods for, for these private equities will be closer to the, around that 10-year 10, 10 mark. And a big part of that is around media revenue cycles. So it was sort of like a media revenue cycle is sort of traditionally around three to four years nowadays, depending on what the sport is and depending on what the, you know, the US is a little bit different. Uh, when you look at there and some of the some of the media broadcast deals, you know, I think NBC signed a like a 10 or 12 year deal to do Monday night football or, or something along those lines. So it's a little bit different in the US. But if you're looking through to Europe and even Australia, that you're looking at a three to four year deal per cycle. So, you know, one of the guys put it, you know, you lead at least two cycles. So that's a, a six to eight year period to realize the value of your assets that it sort of proves that, that there is the value there. And then basically in that third cycle, so that third three to four year period is when you look to either, I guess, realize the value of what you have. I guess the whole period is something that's probably unique to a, to a sporting investment. And, and they definitely go into these investments thinking that. So it's, a, it's quite interesting, that space. And, the, and, and again, the broadcast, which is the revenue driver, which is the key revenue driver for sport, is what that's based on and based on being able to realize that value that they believe is in there, but they just need a little bit more time to do it. James used the term in his research paper, eyes wide open, when touching on how rugby needs to approach these deals in desperate times. I asked James to speak to this point, which is ultimately a question of how investment and the fabric of sport can interrelate. The key thing from doing my research and and understanding talking to these guys is the number one thing that private equity look for from any investment, whether it's sport, whether it's you're investing in a cement company or a trash business, is a return. And a return, return, return and getting more. That that is their number one goal. And I think that in some ways is part of the goal, but not the whole goal for sport. And that's where there's, you know, people see that there could be some clashes. But ultimately I guess if you look at it, and, and, and I think well, I think one a, a sporter and uh, an administrator sort of put it this way was that if private equity make more money because more people are watching the games, are supporting the games, and attending games, that ultimately is better for the sport as a whole in rugby because they're going to make more profit. But if they're making more profit, ultimately we're making more profit, which allows us to invest that back into the grassroots into the key parts of the game. Now, that's in a perfect world and. Not everything's perfect like that, but there is some, you know, distressed assets at the moment within the sporting industry. You know, any investment in that sport take on from any private equity, you need to probably understand that the number one thing that the private equity uh, are coming into is, is that they need to make a return because they are, you know, responsible to their investors. It's not their money that they're putting in and they're trying to get a return for themselves. Ultimately, someone else giving them a, a big amount of money and they, they are giving them that money to get some return back. And I think that's, as long as you understand going into that and see that this is, that's what they're looking to do. And but by doing that, there is ways to make sure that you can manage the, the I guess, the nuances or the traditions of the game, whatever you want to call it. I, I call it the fabric of sport. But I mean, everyone's got little differences, but things that make sport, sport, things that make rugby, rugby you know the traditions that people the game prides itself on it you know it has its world rugby has its in its sort of in its motto and it's sort of seven pillars and things like this they're the things that sort of need to remain but the investment can benefit that if it's done in the same way and i think that that's where i guess the savvy 
people from both sides are looking at this and saying, well, look, there's an opportunity here to use the expertise, to use the capital, but manage it and run it our way. Now, again, the devil's in the detail and every deal is different uh, and every PE deal is different. But I think as long as sport go into these investments with private equity, you know, I think I said in my paper, eyes wide open, you've got to understand that their number one thing is to get money. They're, they don't sort of care if whatever team, the Wallabies maintain their traditions of what, what it means to play for Australia if they're not making their return. Now, there's an element of that. And certainly, you know, they don't want to be seen as bad actors as well because, you know, if they do it well one time and they move on and they have another investment in another sporting asset, they're going to be seen as a, as a good partner if they, they burn their bridges. Sport's not a big world, so it's, uh, word, word travels fast. So they might, uh, they might burn some bridges in that sense. So, look, I think ultimately it's a long way of saying that money is driving this from both sides. So there's no doubting that, 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 that sport need the money as much as private equity want to make the money, but it's how the, the money is spent and invested is, is probably the, the important part and maintaining what it means to be a sport and not selling your soul, so to speak. It's a legitimate concern with sports organisations, be it clubs, leagues or sports generally, being stripped of their identity due to incoming ownership, not understanding or appreciating the history, culture or similar. And what is the ultimate community asset? Sport. This disconnect between fans and wealthy owners had its ultimate test earlier in 2021 with the football Super League debacle. A wake-up call, perhaps, for those with ownership in sport. Fans showed... You need us. One will notice that most of these investments in rugby are in exchange for minority stakes. Ideally, we see a balance struck between what PE can add in terms of business acumen and rugby that has retained majority share, being up to maintain and grow the positive traditions exclusive to them. After the break, more on private equity in rugby and the controversial topic of promotion and relegation with Ben Cisneros from Morgan Sports Law. Naturally, as a UK-based sports lawyer and with most of these PE and rugby deals taking place in the Northern Hemisphere, my discussion with Ben Cisneros largely addresses those investments in that region. Having heard James's views on why rugby and why now, I wanted to hear from Ben on those same questions. Well, I guess it's difficult to say why, why now, why there's been this sudden burst of investment. But I suppose generally, you know, rugby union is, is a relatively young professional sport. Last year, it only celebrated its 25th anniversary of turning professional. So I guess inevitably compared to other sports like football or, or you know, the NFL, it is, it is relatively young and there hasn't been to date all that much investment, certainly not on the private equity side. So I think you could probably look at the sport and say it's been undervalued or, or underexploited commercially over the past 25 years. And so I suppose it's just, it's just been a matter of time before investors started to look at it as a, as a good opportunity. In terms of the, the timing of everything, I suppose it's been growing in the US as a sport over the past decade and also in Asia quite significantly. Obviously, the Rugby World Cup in 2019 was held in Japan. And I think that was a massive success. And I, I wonder if I mean, some of the investment had started before then, but I, I wonder if investors looked at that and, and, and sort of really saw the, the growth potential in rugby and saw that as, as a reason to, to up their investment. I guess also the growth of the women's game is significant. We haven't seen much private equity investment into the women's game itself, but 
with that being such a developing area, it suggests that the game is only going to grow. And so I think I think that's that's the realization that investors have had is that there is still plenty of growth in the game. I think also, you know, it, as a sport, it appeals to a lot of what sports fans love. You know, it's got the gladiatorial element, it's got the skill element, um, and and given the way it's perhaps been under undervalued, underexploited, there is a lot of room to do new things to do to to, to make the sport look better. You know, make it look cool for for, for lack of a better word. You know, that, that there's so much room to develop the profile of the individual athletes of the teams. You know, in in many ways, rugby has been quite amateur for the last 25 years. Yes, it's been a professional sport, but it's only sort of recently really been sort of breaking into, to, I suppose, what some would call true professionalism. It's taken a while for, certainly at club level, for certain standards off the field to be reached. And I, I think that development is perhaps what's prompted the, the, the latest investment. And it's perhaps worth just just going through some of those. I mean, we've seen CBC invest significantly in in, in Europe with them buying a 27% stake in, in Premiership Rugby. Uh, I believe that's a, a stake in the ownership of the league itself. Similarly with Pro 14, which is now uh, the United Rugby Championship, uh, they bought, I think, a 28% stake there. And then with the Six Nations, they've bought 14.3% of the commercial rights. So I don't think they own the league, but they've, uh, they now own a stake in, in the commercial rights of the Six Nations. So they're, they're sort of putting together a profile in Europe, not entirely clear yet what their plan is with that, but you'd imagine it revolves around, around broadcast rights and growing the image of the game. We've also seen plenty of talk about investment into the All Blacks. I think the, the fund Silver Lake have been looking at that not sure the status of that deal, but I think they were looking at a 12.5% stake in, in, in the commercial rights. And there's also been talk about investment into clubs. I think there, was, there, was, there were rumors about Saracens receiving a, a private equity offer. So it's something that it, it is becoming much more commonplace in rugby than it was, say, five years ago. And it'll be interesting to see how, how the trend develops moving forward. As a lawyer, I wanted to ask Ben to speak to those legal questions regarding these investments, takeovers and acquisition deals. So I think with the with the CBC deal into the Six Nations, it's been dragged out over a period of time. Uh, it was probably a couple of years ago that it first got publicised that there were talks about this deal happening. And I think really COVID interrupted the negotiations there. So it's been dragged out a little bit longer than it otherwise would have done. But from, from a legal perspective, I think there's always the question about a sort of merger control and how it would affect competition when uh, an entity is investing across the market. So, you, you know, across the professional rugby market here, they've got, as we mentioned, stakes in Premiership Rugby, Pro 14. Now they're going for the Six Nations. So in the UK, the Competition and Markets Authority had a look at it to see whether there might be any sort of competition law issues there, essentially whether, you know, whether they might have had too much dominance in the market. That, that's essentially the idea, the idea that it might then distort the market for consumers. And ultimately, they, they've, they've cleared it. They've said there, there aren't any issues, which I don't think is really a surprise given, the, given that the stakes are minority stakes. I think I said 27%, 28%, and 14.3%. And, and that 14.3% just being in the commercial rights as well. So I would guess that there wasn't too much of a concern it was probably never likely to cause too much of a problem, but but these are the sort of things that the regulators do look at when there is such significant investment, I suppose. Moving on now to the contentious topic of promotion and relegation. 
and the consistently floated idea that ring-fencing leagues amounts to financial stability. The English Premiership will be temporarily ring-fenced as a response to COVID, but I wanted to gather Ben's thoughts on the issue, legally speaking, as well as what it does to the product that is rugby. There's got to be a question of whether those who've invested and now getting what they bargained for. I mean, I think you could you could ask the same question in respect of broadcasters. You know, BC Sport have most of the most of the broadcasting rights, and there might be a question as to whether whether they would be put off by the fact it's now not what they originally signed up for. But but that said, it's very difficult to to know whether the product is going to be diminished or or, or improved by abandoning relegation. Some would say that the latter part of this season in the Premiership shows that actually it's a good thing because. We perhaps saw some of the most attacking rugby there's been, although perhaps, you know, at the lower end of the table, there, there was a lack of excitement. So it, that one's a difficult call, you know, whether whether investors and, and, and broadcasters, partners might not like what they're now involved in. I, it's very difficult to say because it could, it could well turn out to be to be a massive success. Um as regard the wider question as to whether ring fencing is good or not, I mean, the, the RFU have taken the decision to, to temporarily suspend relegation. Um, this, this season that's just finished, there was no relegation. One team will come up from the championship. Then next season, the same approach will, will be applied. So by, by the end of next season, there will be a 14 team league up from a 12 team league. The season after that, there won't be promotion or relegation. So the 14, Teams will stay the same. And then at the end of the next season, so that will be 23-24, there will be a relegation playoff between the bottom team in uh, the Premiership and the top team in the Championship. So, so really, we've already shifted to at least a temporary pause on promotion relegation. You know, I think perhaps some cynics would say that that's, that sort of doesn't bode well for the future of promotion and relegation, and it may well turn out to be a longer-term thing. But I think the way it's been framed is is that it's to do with COVID-19. And again, if one was being cynical, one might say it's a convenient excuse to bring in ring fencing as it's, as it's commonly referred to. But I think there is certainly some sense in, in pausing this temporarily because clubs have been put in pretty difficult financial positions as a result of COVID-19. The threat of relegation is obviously another significant financial threat and I think there was a very real fear that if a club was to be relegated, it, it could cause them to, to, to go bust. You know, quite quite how well established those fears are, you know, we, we'll never know without fully seeing the, cl- the club's books and knowing exactly what how their investors are feeling, etc. But there, there does seem to be some sense in, in pausing relegation, I'd say. And, and, and then by allowing promotion over the next couple of years, I think they've quite cleverly avoided the the legal issue which i foresee and many others foresee which is that a closed league could be subject to a competition law challenge the idea being that at the moment or or prior to the end of this season at least there was promotion relegation between the premiership and the championship so there there are professional teams in in both leagues and if you were to to ring fence the premiership then those teams in the championship wouldn't be able to access the the, the same part of the market as the premiership clubs. So the question would be, well, is that anti-competitive and, and contrary to competition law? There are obviously reasons, as I've mentioned, for, for wanting to, to ring fence, financial stability being, being the key one. Um, and again, investors might see that as, as being reassuring because, you know, 
a club isn't going to going to suffer massively if if they were to be relegated they don't have to worry about that risk the the downside is massively reduced on any investment but coming back to the competition law point obviously the clubs in the championship would see that as as being exclusionary the idea that they can't access the the the, the top table and so what the RFU have done is is by making it about covid and only making it temporary they've made clear that their their actions have a legitimate purpose what you're describing competition law as a legitimate purpose you know ensuring the financial sustainability of of the league the stability of the league and by making it only temporary they've ensured that their actions are proportionate to that aim and so that makes it very difficult for a competition law challenge to succeed um because it's only temporary it's it it makes it look like it's more about covid and and really about just protecting um, uh, you know the financial stability for, for the short term. Whether whether things will change, you know, at the end of this four year cycle, which is, you know, the point at which these these current um, regulations are going to end, uh, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But but that's that's the current state of play. And coming back to your your first question, I suppose about whether it's a good thing or not, I think it depends whose eyes you look through it at, or you look at it through, I should say. Because obviously, if you're if you're someone who wants to invest in the championship or who has invested in the championship, then it's it's a terrible thing because you're you're going to be locked out of achieving you know the the ultimate accolade of winning the Premiership and and all the financial benefits that come from that, or even just competing in the Premiership is is going to be a better um, return on, on on your investment. But equally, if if you're an investor in a Premiership club, then then perhaps it's it's a good thing because, as we said, you know it's hard to say whether it it diminishes the product, but what it does do is is bring more financial stability. I think perhaps this four year period now will be a good test actually to see how it works, what the impact is on on the product, because. After this temporary pause, we we may realise that actually, you know, without relegation, the league is a bit boring. Yes, the top half's really exciting because there's lots of teams that, you know, as, as good as they ever were. But at the bottom half of the league, in the second half of the season, it's, you know, no one's really interested in watching those games. So this will be probably a, a good test and we'll be able to assess, you know, wh- whether it's a good thing or not better at the end of that four-year period. Having gathered Ben's initial views on the topic... I asked him how realistic a competition law challenge might be in relation to ring fence leagues and is it something we've seen before? So competition law challenge is something that English rugby has seen before. Um, There was a case back in, I think, around 2015 involving London Welsh, which was a club that was seeking promotion to to the premiership, having won the championship. And and that case concerned the the minimum standards criteria that, that existed at the time um, in order to to enable the, the championship winner to to be promoted, you had to comply with certain criteria, including having primacy of tenure over your over your stadium. Which is, um, you know, you can see why why the rule might exist, but the way it was applied at the time was was very unfair, and it applied differently to different teams. So they brought a competition law challenge there um, successfully arguing that the, the restriction that was being imposed was uh, anti-competitive. Um, so that is perhaps a useful precedent in, in the sense that it shows that competition law does apply unsurprisingly to this situation. It also sort of sets a precedent uh, about the, the fact that the RFU and or, and or the premiership are relevant bodies that can be made subject to these laws. 
So it, it is something that has been tried before, albeit in a slightly different context. And I think, you know, that, that being a, something of a precedent is a telling indication that you, you couldn't rule out a, a challenge in future were the league to be ring fenced on a permanent basis. The thing is that with the European model of sport, it is quite rare to have a ring fence league because, you know, as, as you know, sort of the idea of promotion and relegation, particularly in football, is something that is sort of enshrined into the mentality of sport in Europe and in football in Europe in particular. So to my knowledge, there haven't been any particular challenges. And of course, in, in, in other countries, um, there are plenty of closed leagues, you know, the US, for example, Australian sports, but there the, the model is, is different from, you know, it's built from the, from the ground up to be a closed league. You know, there's collective bargaining agreements for the players everyone buys in to the league itself. Whereas what's happened in, 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 let's go back to premiership rugby is all these clubs existed previously or most of them anyway, and they found their way at the top and then the league has been formed around them. And it's then very, very difficult to impose those tight, tight regulations without, you know, excluding other clubs and therefore falling foul of competition law. It's much easier to start from scratch and to build up a closed league than it is to, um, make one further down the line when when the when the result of that would be to kick out others. Um, of course, there there's also the European Super League case, which has loads of competition law angles as well. There are concerns, competition law concerns there really on on both sides, because on on one hand the proposal is to create pretty much a closed league. They're saying you know they would allow some clubs to come in every now and then, but certain clubs would always be a part of it. So you've got the competition law concern there, which is quite similar to. It's what we're talking about with the Premiership. But then on the other side, you've got UEFA and to, to a certain extent FIFA trying to stop them from doing this as a matter of principle. And then the clubs are saying, well, that in itself, you trying to stop us from essentially setting up a new business and you lead, that is anti-competitive. So yeah, competition law and sport is, is a massive talking point, particularly in, in Europe because of uh, the, the EU approach to competition law, which is sort of filtered down. But it's it's something that perhaps hasn't been hasn't been tested as, as much as it as it might. There is a genuine cultural concern, as Ben has touched on, given promotion and relegation is the norm in European sport. But what about the idea that ring fencing the league is detrimental to the growth of rugby, and that a strong second division where teams are fighting for promotion is the true sign of a thriving rugby country? I asked Ben to speak to this. Well, I, th- I think that's a, it's a really good point. And you only have to look at France to see that it can work. I mean, France have three professional leagues operating. They recently extended it from two to three. So th- there is evidence to suggest that, you know, if it's done properly, it can work. My feeling is that with, with the right investment into the championship, be it from the RFU or be it from private investors, you know, you could have a, a thriving second tier in reality, you know, the 12 premiership clubs don't cover the whole, whole of England. There's, there's room for other clubs to exist and to thrive, particularly in, in certain parts of the country. You know, you've got clubs that might be in, in Yorkshire where there currently isn't a premiership team. Cornwall, th- those, those counties, I mean, f- for your listeners who m- might not be uh, UK or English citizens, they might not really know where I'm talking about, but th- those parts of the country are rugby hotbeds. People love their rugby in those parts, but there currently isn't a premiership team. So there has to be room for more growth. Um, and, and, you know, rather than forgetting about all those clubs in the championship that existed for years and have, 
have fan bases. Okay, they're not necessarily all going to have huge fan bases, but that can be grown. And some of them do have strong fan bases. There's there's room to to make a, a thriving, you know, two league system. I I think, um, and I think you know the, the game as a whole in this country would would massively benefit from that. You only have to look at the the current England squad to see how many players have come through championship clubs at some stage or other. I mean, I, I don't have the numbers to hand, but it's, it's a really significant number of the England squad have, have played in the championship at some point in their careers. And, and, you know, prior to COVID, actually, the RFU cut funding. They massively reduced their funding to the championship, which in itself is, you know, massively questionable in my opinion. Um, and now there's this stuff about ring fencing as well, which has been on the cards for years. So you really feel that they're squeezing them out when actually, you know, there's a very good argument to say that these clubs do an awful lot for the game and, and with the right investment and with the right commercial approach, you know, could, could make for a, a really thriving system in this country. Regardless of whether a competition law or cause of action exists, a party or parties still need to bring a case before the relevant decision-making bodies. I asked Ben about this point and who would bring a legal challenge. Yeah, I, th- I think it, it, it's an Im- important point that in order for a challenge to be brought, there's got to be a club that's willing and has the financial resources to to make the challenge, because obviously it's not it's not going to come come cheap, and it, it would be a complex case. But if if a team is well, when a team is promoted at the end of this season, the, the Premiership will have fourteen teams. So, you, you, you know, the top team, the next best team, I should say, in the championship is going to come up, I think is thought likely to be Ealing Trailfinders, who have had significant investment from the owner of Trailfinders, a travel agency in this, in this, in this part of the world. And they're, they're probably the most commercially powerful team there at the moment. But if they come up, then there has to be the question as to who else would be left to bring a legal challenge if, if that was indeed thought to be the, the right way forward. There are, you know, there are clubs who, who I'm sure would, would dearly love to keep promotion and relegation alive. And I think the fear would be that, you know, if, if you kill off promotion to the premiership, then you know, the, the investment potential in the league just falls away. So there, there may well be owners who, who think it's worthwhile, but, but, you know, it's, it's certainly less clear that there would be one leading contender to, to bring this challenge. I mean, perhaps the clubs would get together and do it, but, you know, Ealing were probably the club that was has been making the most noise about wanting to be promoted and wanting that pathway to be available to them. So, yeah, we'll, we'll have to wait and see what develops. But certainly, with with them being promoted, the, the chances of, of a legal challenge seem seem less likely. So, yeah, we'll have to wait and see. The promotion and relegation debate in rugby will continue over coming years, and perhaps the English Premiership COVID response test case will be informative. The private equity in rugby debate will also continue, but it might be closer to 10 years before we have the results of these recent investments. PE is not immune to failure, but we need not look too far for examples of more traditional ownership or membership models in rugby sending their clubs or leagues into turmoil through mismanagement. Private equity would not even have an in into rugby if rugby was not desperate for alternative funding solutions. The knee-jerk reactions and name-calling, such as vultures, appear to often come from folks that don't really understand the complexities of sports business, nor the financial desperation from a lot of corners of rugby. Whilst financial is not the only measure of success of a rugby organisation, 
the reality is that it's a significant metric. With value add and returns always at front of mind for PE, this can benefit rugby and prop up failing leagues and organisations when it comes to business. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Sportonomic. Make sure you find the show, follow and subscribe on your favourite podcast app. A huge thank you to this week's guests, James Horwell and Ben Cisneros. And thanks to our producer, Dan McHugh. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find me on Twitter, at Reese Lenarduzzi. Sportonomic is an afternoon sport group production.